We come to a passage of Ephesians that really talks about a love that surpasses knowledge. There's many different ways, or as Thomas says, sacred pathways to help us experience that love. One of them is music. Um, and sometimes, especially a form of music I'd never heard before, or I don't remember ever hearing before, that was pretty amazing to have that kind of, so thank you so much for sharing that. I think for many of us, I mean, we know from Genesis that like almost from day one, ever since the serpent whispered his spell and we bought in, knowledge is kind of a trap for us. It puffs us up, it makes us proud. We have to be careful what we think we know because it becomes a lens by which we look at everything. And I think Paul himself was very much trapped by that in his youth with what he thought that he had knowledge of. In this passage in Ephesians, he talks about knowing intimacy, experiencing a love that surpasses knowledge. And really praying that the Ephesians would find that to be worth it. Is knowing a love that surpasses knowledge worth this to you? An extreme makeover. We've seen that show. We all like the finished product. Imagine you were the house and you could feel. <laughs> and you had to feel everything you have to go through to get from where you are to what is that extreme makeover. Imagine the house would protest mightily, especially if it didn't have a clear sense of the end goal. And so all it's feeling is you're knocking down walls, you're ripping out plumbing, you're, how does that feel? And this is where you get people like John saying, look, I know the idea blows our mind, but what we will be, we can't even imagine. You have to think what's the best you can imagine and not turn that into an idol, but realize it's better than that. You have to accept that we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we are already fully known. Is that worth it to you? to go through that extreme makeover so you can get there. What is your greatest wish for your soul and for other people's souls? Paul tells us his through this prayer. And it's not a long section of scripture, but it is an incredibly powerful one. Last week, we talked about why church and really trying to get to a place where we are showing God's wisdom and aligning with his purpose, which means that we're experiencing him. And he starts in chapter 3, which he mentioned, I mentioned last week, with this, for this reason. Then he goes on the tangent, except it's not really a tangent. But in verse 14, when we get to today, we looked at verses 1 through 13 last week. He starts with, for this reason, and then he gets, describes all this stuff. And he comes back in verse 14, and he picks up his thought, for this reason, I kneel. And this delay or this tangent, likely, I feel, was Paul being nudged by the Spirit to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Before you pray all this for these people, give a little bit more of the backstory. When he says, I kneel, that really is a picture of humility. I pray, and 
It has added force because he took that tangent. Say, look, it's not just what God's doing in you. It's what he's showing to these celestial beings through you. Especially in bringing what to them was the greatest ethnic divide, Jew and every other ethnic group, together in Christ. And this idea of I kneel, to us it's like, well, I kneel and pray because we've had kneelers in our more high liturgical churches for centuries. But the Jewish people did not typically kneel when they prayed. They typically stood. And so this idea of him emphasizing before he says, I pray, he says, I kneel, he's really trying to drive home the point of how overwhelmed he is by the fact that we've been made alive, that there's this realization of unity between Jew and Gentile, these different ethnic groups, that they've been brought into one household. What God is doing in the church, through the church to the heavenly realms, and then saying, therefore, I kneel. And that's communicating a deep emotion and earnestness that's kind of lost on us when we talk about kneeling to pray. Even though most of us don't actually kneel to pray anymore. We've had centuries of kind of getting acclimated to that. But if you go through Scripture and you look at key points where, where it says, the person saying the prayer knelt. This is Solomon when he dedicated the temple. He knelt and prayed. This is Stephen at the time of his martyrdom, who maybe didn't have much choice at that point. <laughs> he might not be able to stand. But it emphasizes that he knelt and prayed. This is Peter at the deathbed of Dorcas, praying for Dorcas to be raised up. This is Paul when he's leaving the Ephesian elders on his last journey to Jerusalem. This is Jesus in agony in Gethsemane. And the scripture is making a point of saying they knelt and prayed. And that communicates more of the intensity and the passion and the humility of these prayers. And really, with that kind of introduction, what Paul launches into then is what I would call an apostolic, or many today call a formational prayer. Almost from day one, because even before we really know Christ, we, we tend to pray because I want certain things to happen. And those aren't wrong. You know, you, you be honest with God about what you want. That's part of just having a relationship, is being honest. But Paul is praying for the Ephesians in what could be called apostolic or formational prayer. And that's what he starts with. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's formational. We need to do more practicing of apostolic formational prayer. This is where we have to get real with God and say, God, there's a lot of ways I need to change. And they're deep inside me. And I need you to strengthen that wounded, hiding, armoring, all the way from the Garden of Eden, covering, not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be known. I need that part of me changed. I remember very powerfully um, the weekend I got saved in 1982. And I didn't know the Bible at all. But 
I woke up, well, I was reading, I was reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and I just kind of had this realization, set the book down and said, I need to change. And then another part of me said, I have changed. And that's kind of the Christian journey. <laughs> and it was, but it was just, it wasn't, there's was no condemnation, there was no shame. Um, that had been, that had been lifted. I felt all that plenty of times since then. Most of the time I've done it to myself. But there was an awareness there of, wow, this something deep inside of me has radically changed, and so now I need change. And that's the kind of prayer Paul's praying for these Ephesians, that there was that somewhere deep inside of them, in their inner being, and that's the thing that Paul says, though outwardly we are ra- wasting away, in our inner being we are being renewed day by day. It's this word picture that's kind of like, down in the depths of the sea, if you go into Hebrew mythology, where Leviathan dwelt, stirring up chaos and trouble, down there at the seabed, below what even Leviathan can go down to. That's the foundation. And that needs to be strengthened and changed. for us to even really know. And so he starts this prayer and he wants them to get a knowing and a knowledge, but he starts with, hey, that's the foundation of your being. That's like the image of God within. And that, the Spirit's there because he's just said all that to the Ephesians. God has sealed you with his Spirit. It's already there. And so Paul's praying that they could connect with that in a practical way, it's like John saying, the anointing's already there. You don't need me to teach you anything in the way of giving you a resource you don't have. My teaching helps you tap into a resource you already do have. And Paul's prayer is trying to get the Ephesians to tap into a resource they already have. But it's deep inside them. It's down at the very depths of your being. It's the foundation of that C4. And you learn how to tap into it through prayer, prayer, through contemplation, through grace. And Paul's moving toward this prayer so that Ephesians 4.1, which we'll pick up next week, is you walk worthy of that calling you've already received. You're not walking worthy so you can get it. It's there. And if you can learn to tap into it, then you'll walk more consistently with the calling you already have. So we need to be praying that kind of formational prayer for us. What I think is really apostolic, pioneering, foundational kind of prayer. It's not a pleasant journey (laughs) because if you really let those things come out of you, it's like, And that's why it's so important to realize there's no condemnation. It's not like you're, you're facing all this stuff to get God's spirit. You're able to face all this stuff because you have God's spirit. And this is all prior to what we think of as knowledge. It's a knowing. But information alone doesn't touch that. And as someone who, at this stage in my life, now more often related to other people, I sense a problem, I do research to help them. And that's 
something I do, and hopefully it's helpful. Um, and that's, I'm not saying don't do that, but there's, this, there's something else going on that needs to be happening too. I've certainly seen plenty of people who I can put it in writing and repeatedly share it with them and then have them respond to me weeks or months later and it's not what I said. See, the information by itself doesn't do it. You'd be surprised people that I've had to send them a clip of my sermon because of what they said I said. I'm like, I don't, I don't remember saying that. I might have. I mean, I certainly say some crazy stuff and I'll own that if I said it and I'll go back and listen to the sermon and send the clip. See, it's not information alone. What's going on? Something in the inner being is just not able to hear it. Didn't Jesus himself say, he who has ears to hear? And Paul's praying to engage that part of the being and to strengthen it so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's not talking about them getting saved because you've got to keep going there. That you being rooted and grounded in love, it's really, that's the embracing of the extreme makeover. So that Christ may dwell, what does dwell mean here in your hearts? He's already there, but... This is a little bit challenging for us, but really Paul's point is that Christ may dwell in love. So he's there. And if we think of this more relationally, look, many of the people in this room are married. Are you walking in love? The walking in love doesn't create the marriage. (laughs) That's something you can do or not do in a relationship you already have. Many of us, all of us are children. Many of us have children. The relationship is there. Are you strengthened down at the core, at like the gut level of your being to just dare to love in that relationship? Does he dwell there in love. The rooted and grounding is descriptive terms that are really kind of coming after the love. So that, sorry, just knocked off my own earpiece. (laughs) Rooted and grounded in love. Evangelicalism, a broad umbrella that we basically fit under, its great strength when it's done well is emphasizing this deeply personal relationship with Jesus. And its great failure, therefore, is as soon as it gets distracted from that and stops focusing on that formational kind of life and walk with Jesus. Even if what displaces that is relatively good, like political engagement or social justice or whatever the thing is, it's so easy to displace that sense of what I most need to be focused on when using my greatest wish is formation within me. And that's what's going to make me most able to influence other people. Like Dave said, when he's talking about not my shouting, (laughs) not my winning every point, as important as rhetoric and argument properly understood is, 
There's something formational that needs to go on in me. Why do I need to win the argument so badly? Probably revealing something more broken in me than it is revealing anything about the rightness or wrongness of the position. See, that's formational. Think about this. Jesus was never wrong. He was totally willing to be viewed as the scapegoat, as the wrong one. So that we actually had a chance to be right. And we don't ever want to be viewed as wrong, and we're so wrong. <laughs> but we dig in. That's an indication of formation that lacks in me. And as that formation starts to happen, and you get more rooted and grounded in that, then, as he's praying, that you, rooted and grounded in love, that Christ is dwelling there in love, and you are increasingly in touch with that. Then you have strength. Then you have strength to comprehend. With all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? That's actually his phrase, and the ESV does a good job with that. Then you have strength to comprehend. To realize the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. This is David, where can I go from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're there. This is Paul in Romans 8, saying the same thing about the love of Christ. So we can read those verses, and it's important to read them and intellectually, cognitively process them and say, yes, that's the faith, I believe that. It's another thing to have things change deep inside of you formationally, where you now have the strength at this core part of your being to feel that, for lack of a better term. To be aware of that. How incredibly present God is. Our Christian journey often starts with a deep sense of God's transcendence because I'm a sinner. But we really then sometimes lose track of his imminence and his presence with us. But once you gain the power to walk in that, then, and you can now comprehend that because something has changed deep inside of you. You know what drives most of us to that point? Is going an extremely long period without feeling it. What contemplative literature is called a dark night of the soul. Where you're like doing whatever you always done and thought it was good, and then all of a sudden you're not feeling it. And I'm not talking about not feeling it for a day, a week, a month. And so for a while there, you start saying, well, maybe if I figure it out and I get the more correct system, it'll come back. <laughs> and from a pastoral perspective, I've just seen especially people as they get to a certain stage in their Christian life and they were on fire and they were younger and then they, I don't feel it anymore. And so they start analyzing everything. And it's almost never, oh, there's something deeply broken and wounded in me. And that's not the place of condemnation. There's no, there's no condemnation. That's, I'm broken. And we all know that on one level. It's a different thing when God leaves you sitting there for weeks, months, years, <laughs> until you finally say, okay. 
But when you get there and you have the strength to hear that, you know a love that surpasses knowledge. You know the subjective experience, a love that surpasses knowledge. God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He doesn't know everybody. That's clear in Scripture. Depart from me. I never knew you. Abraham, now I know that you fear me. Well, he had knowledge of it before. But there isn't that intimacy. It's what God most craves. And that goes beyond our intellect and our knowledge. And the downside of evangelicalism or fundamentalism, when we aren't staying in that place, is we have our systems. And if you don't cross every T or dot every I, boom. Especially if you happen to trigger things in us historically and emotionally in our lineage. And that's revealing things that we haven't resolved in ourselves. And Paul's saying this love surpasses knowledge. And see, we read that and we're like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, nobody fully knows God. When Paul talks about surpasses, he only mentions it five times. He's the only one who mentions this term. And he talks about 2 Corinthians 3.10. Oh, by the way, three of them are in Ephesians. The other two are to the Corinthians. They really needed to get this. I'll just mention one of the Corinthians ones for time's sake. 2 Corinthians 3.10. Indeed, in this case, and I'll tell you the context in a minute, what had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. What was it that had glory but has no glory at all now? You know? What's that? I still didn't hear it. No? That's a good guess. What's that? The Old Covenant. He's not bashing the Old Covenant. Paul's a Jew. <laughs> he loves the Old Covenant. He's saying that the New Covenant so surpasses it that by comparison, it has no glory. Now, three times in Ephesians, he mentions this surpassing. Verse, chapter 1, verse 19, that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe. Immeasurable. Ephesians 2.7 So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3.19 here that you would know a love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So here's my knowledge. Here's Jesus' love. No. <laughs> Okay, here's my knowledge and my understanding. Compared to my understanding of it, I have no understanding compared to the love he has for me. So how well is it going to work when you really just think you can intellectualize the Christian faith and figure it out? None of this is a critique of analysis and thinking. It's how shallow we become. It's like being stuck in the old covenant. Our experience of God formationally inside of us not only needs to exceed our understanding of him, it has to blow by it. Like knowledge is almost nothing. Not because knowledge is nothing. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thomas Aquinas, December 6th, 1273. Thomas Aquinas, the Roman Catholic Church has made like 33 doctors in their history. Yeah, Athanasius is the doctor of orthodoxy. 
Aquinas is the doctor of theology. And on December 6, 1273, he had a very deep personal experience with God that he talks about. And he says, all that I have written seems like straw to compare to what has now been revealed to me. And he's the doctor of theology in the Catholic Church. That was December 6, 1273. He died on March 7, 1274, three months before he died. He's like, wow, it's all straw. See, it's love that gives you the courage to empty yourself, to lay down your armor. Think about Jesus, the armor of his glory, that nobody could have even approached him. He lays it down, and he risks being abandoned, being denied, being betrayed. This is the catch-22 for us. The analyzing part of us is trying to keep us safe. But in doing so, it keeps us from embracing the kind of emotional transparency that is necessary for love to thrive. It is not the intellectual stuff that is deep. It's the emotional stuff. And it's stubbornly resistant to our intellect. It will hijack your intellect to get you to protect yourself. And your intellect will do its job. It's trying to keep you safe. It's what it's there for. But that doesn't work too well when you take that to your walk with God. Say, wait, God, wait, can I figure this out first? And God's like, uh, no. It's kind of threatening. Yeah, it feels that way. But he's actually trying to get us to choose safety because it's the intimacy with him that keeps us safe. Now look, everybody in this room can tell stories about, yeah, intimacy is not safe. And by the way, Jesus can tell those stories really well. Knowledge cannot keep us safe. But when you feel threatened, and it's more like down here in your gut, your mind starts whirling. If you understand, well, it's trying to keep me safe, that's fine, but let's not overdo it. Then, you're knowing a love that surpasses knowledge. It's what I call the unthreatenability of Jesus. And the only time he seems to operate out of a sense of threat is Gethsemane and the cross, and that's when he's taking on our sin and our brokenness. He didn't need to know. When's the second coming? I don't know. I'll tell you all kinds of things to look out for, but I don't know. Well, can't you figure it out for us? We'd like to know. I don't, I'm not worried about that. To even be abandoned, denied, betrayed, you have to let someone get close. Intimacy is not intellectual. Knowing is not knowledge. As I already mentioned, God has knowledge of everything. He does not know everyone. Paul has a goal in unpacking this. And I have a hunch it was a pretty deep and somewhat bitter lesson that Paul himself had to learn. Because he's the intellectual. He's the knowledge guy. Out of all the apostles. He has a goal. I want you to know this love that like just blows away knowledge. You're gonna need a lot of strength to do that. You're gonna need a lot of emotional fortitude in guts and I'm praying you get it. 
But you need to get past this knowledge trap so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And see, filling is subjective. Filling is something we go in ebbs and flows. And Paul wants us to walk from a place of filling, and he's going to talk about that in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. In other words, don't self-medicate it. Be filled. And it's really be filling yourself. We'll get to that. But that's his goal. He's already mentioning it here in, in his prayer. I want you to be filled. Here's the process you have to go through to get there. And you're going to have to, you're going to, have to get way beyond your knowledge. We're moving into a shift in Ephesians. From sitting to walking. Worthy of the calling we have received, but that's next week. When he says, walk worthy of the calling you received. Don't take that out of context. He just said, you got to get way beyond your knowledge so you can be filled. And that's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take a lot of strength. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Help us to be people who know a love that blows far past our knowledge. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.